Chapters 34 through 53 of the Enchiridion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The Enchiridion by St. Augustine. Translated by Professor J. F. Shaw. Chapter 34. Now of this mediator it would occupy too much space to say anything at all worthy of him, and indeed to say what is worthy of him is not in the power of man. For who will explain in consistent words this single statement, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, so that we may believe on the only Son of God, the Father Almighty, born of the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary? The meaning of the word being made flesh is not that the divine nature was changed into flesh, but that the divine nature assumed our flesh. And by flesh we are here to understand man, the part being put for the whole, as when it is said, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, that is, no man. For we must believe that no part was wanting in that human nature which he put on, save that it was a nature wholly free from every taint of sin, not such a nature as is conceived between the two sexes through carnal lust, which is born in sin, and whose guilt is washed away in regeneration, but such as it behooved a virgin to bring forth, when the mother's faith, not her lust, was the condition of conception. And if her virginity had been marred even in bringing him forth, he would not have been born of a virgin, and it would be false, which God forbid, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, as is believed and declared by the whole church, which, in imitation of his mother, daily brings forth members of his body, and yet remains a virgin. Read, if you please, my letter on the virginity of the Holy Mary, which I sent to that eminent man, whose name I mention with respect and affection, Volusianus. Chapter 35 Wherefore Christ Jesus, the Son of God, is both God and man, God before all worlds, man in our world, God because the word of God, for the word was God, and man, because in his one person the word was joined with a body and a rational soul. Wherefore, so far as he is God, he and the Father are one. So far as he is man, the Father is greater than he. For when he was the only Son of God, not by grace, but by nature, that he might be also full of grace, he became the Son of Man. And he himself unites both natures in his own identity, and both natures constitute one Christ because, being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be, what he was by nature, equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, not losing or lessening the form of God. And, accordingly, he was both made less, and remained equal, being both in one, as has been said. But he was one of these as word, and the other as man. As word he is equal with the Father, as man less than the Father one Son of God, and at the same time Son of Man, one Son of Man, and at the same time Son of God, not two sons of God, God and man, but one Son of God, God without beginning, man with a beginning, our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 36 Now here the grace of God is displayed with the greatest power and clearness. 
for what merit had the human nature and the man Christ earned, that it should in this unparalleled way be taken up into the unity of the person of the only Son of God? What goodness of will, what goodness of desire and intention, what good works had gone before, which made this man worthy to become one person with God? Had he been a man previously to this, and had he earned this unprecedented reward, that he should be thought worthy to become God? Assuredly, nay. From the very moment that he began to be man, he was nothing else than the Son of God, the only Son of God, the Word who was made flesh, and therefore he was God. So that, just as each individual man unites in one person a body and a rational soul, so Christ in one person unites the Word and man. Now wherefore was this unheard-of glory conferred on human nature, a glory which, as there was no antecedent merit, was of course wholly of grace, except that here those who looked at the matter soberly and honestly might behold a clear manifestation of the power of God's free grace, and might understand that they are justified from their sins by the same grace which made the man Christ Jesus free from the possibility of sin. And so the angel, when he announced to Christ's mother the coming birth, saluted her thus, Hail thou that art full of grace, and shortly afterwards thou hast found grace with God. Now she was said to be full of grace, and to have found grace with God, because she was to be the mother of her Lord, nay, of the Lord of all flesh. But speaking of Christ himself, the evangelist John, after saying, The word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, adds, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When he says, The word was made flesh, this is full of grace. When he says, The glory of the only begotten of the Father, this is full of truth. For the truth himself, who was the only begotten of the Father, not by grace, but by nature, by grace took our humanity upon him, and so united it with his own person, that he himself became also the Son of Man. Chapter 37 For the same Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten, that is, the only Son of God, our Lord, was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the gift of God, the gift being himself indeed equal to the giver. And therefore the Holy Spirit also is God, not inferior to the Father and the Son. The fact, therefore, that the nativity of Christ in his human nature was by the Holy Spirit is another clear manifestation of grace. For when the virgin asked the angel how this which he had announced should be, seeing she knew not a man, the angel answered, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And when Joseph was minded to put her away, suspecting her of adultery, as he knew she was not with child by himself, he was told by the angel, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. That is, what thou suspectest to be begotten of another man is of the Holy Ghost. Chapter 38 Nevertheless are we on this account to say that the Holy Ghost is the father of the man Christ, and that as God the Father begat the Word, so God the Holy Spirit begat the man, and that these two natures constitute the one Christ, and that as the Word he is the Son of God the Father, and as man the Son of God the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit as his Father begat him of the Virgin Mary. Who will dare to say so? Nor is it necessary to show by reasoning how many other absurdities flow from this supposition, 
when it is itself so absurd that no believer's ears can bear to hear it. Hence, as we confess, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God of God, and as man was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, having both natures, the divine and the human, is the only Son of God, the Father Almighty, from whom proceedeth the Holy Spirit. Now in what sense do we say that Christ was born of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit did not beget him? Is it that he made him, since our Lord Jesus Christ, though as God all things were made by him, yet as man was himself made, as the Apostle says, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh? But as that created thing which the Virgin conceived and brought forth, though it was united only to the person of the Son, was made by the whole Trinity, for the works of the Trinity are not separable, why should the Holy Spirit alone be mentioned as having made it? Or is it that, when one of the three is mentioned as the author of any work, the whole Trinity is to be understood as working? That is true, and can be proved by examples. But we need not dwell longer on this solution. For the puzzle is, in what sense it is said, born of the Holy Ghost, when he is in no sense the Son of the Holy Ghost. For though God made this world, it would not be right to say that it is the Son of God, or that it was born of God. We would say that it was created, or made, or framed, or ordered by him, or whatever form of expression we can properly use. Here then, when we make confession that Christ was born of the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, it is difficult to explain how it is that he is not the Son of the Holy Ghost, and is the Son of the Virgin Mary, when he was born both of him and of her. It is clear beyond a doubt that he was not born of the Holy Spirit as his father, in the same sense that he was born of the Virgin as his mother. Chapter 39 We need not therefore take for granted that whatever is born of a thing is forthwith to be declared the son of that thing. For, to pass over the fact that a son is born of a man in a different sense from that in which a hare or a louse is born of him, neither of these being a son, to pass over this, I say, is too mean an illustration for a subject of so much importance. It is certain that those who are born of water and of the Holy Spirit cannot with propriety be called sons of the water, though they are called sons of God the Father, and of the Church their mother. In the same way, then, he who was born of the Holy Spirit is the Son of God the Father, not of the Holy Spirit. For what I have said of the hair and the other things is sufficient to show us that not everything which is born of another can be called the son of that of which it is born, just as it does not follow that all who are called a man's sons were born of him, for some sons are adopted. And some men are called sons of hell, not as being born of hell, but as prepared for it, as the sons of the kingdom are prepared for the kingdom. Chapter 40 And therefore, as one thing may be born of another, and yet not in such a way as to be its son, and as not every one who is called a son was born of him whose son he is called, it is clear that this arrangement by which Christ was born of the Holy Spirit, but not as his son, and of the Virgin Mary as her son, is intended as a manifestation of the grace of God. For it was by this grace that a man, without any antecedent merit, was at the very commencement of his existence as man, so united in one person with the word of God, that the very person who was the son of man was at the same time son of God, and the very person who was son of God was at the same time son of man. And in the adoption of his human nature into the divine, the grace itself became in a way so natural to the man as to leave no room for the entrance of sin. Wherefore this grace is signified by the Holy Spirit. 
for he, though in his own nature God, may also be called the gift of God. And to explain all this sufficiently, if indeed it could be done at all, would require a very lengthened discussion. CHAPTER 41 Begotten and conceived, then, without any indulgence of carnal lust, and therefore bringing with him no original sin, and by the grace of God joined and united in a wonderful and unspeakable way, in one person with the word, the only begotten of the Father, a son by nature, not by grace, and therefore having no sin of his own. Nevertheless, on account of the likeness of sinful flesh in which he came, he was called sin, that he might be sacrificed to wash away sin. For under the old covenant sacrifices were sin, were called sins. And he, of whom all these sacrifices were types and shadows, was himself truly made sin. Hence the apostle, after saying, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, forthwith adds, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He does not say, as some incorrect copies read, He who knew no sin did sin for us, as if Christ had himself sinned for our sakes. But he says, Him who knew no sin, that is, Christ, God, to whom we are to be reconciled, hath made to be sin for us, that is, hath made him a sacrifice for our sins, by which we might be reconciled to God. He then, being made sin, just as we are made righteousness, our righteousness being not our own, but God's, not in ourselves, but in him, he being made sin, not his own, but ours, not in himself, but in us, showed by the likeness of sinful flesh in which he was crucified, that though sin was not in him, yet that in a certain sense he died to sin, by dying in the flesh which was the likeness of sin, and that although he himself had never lived the old life of sin, yet by his resurrection he typified our new life springing up out of the old death in sin. Chapter 42 And this is the meaning of the great sacrament of baptism which is solemnized among us, that all who attain to this grace should die to sin, as he is said to have died to sin, because he died in the flesh, which is the likeness of sin, and rising from the font regenerate, as he arose alive from the grave, should begin a new life in the spirit, whatever may be the age of the body. Chapter 43 For from the infant newly born to the old man bent with age, as there is none shut out from baptism, so there is none who in baptism does not die to sin. But infants die only to original sin. Those who are older die also to all the sins which their evil lives have added to the sin which they brought with them. Chapter 44 But even these latter are frequently said to die to sin, though undoubtedly they die not to one sin, but to all the numerous actual sins they have committed in thought, word, or deed. For the singular number is often put for the plural, as when the poet says, They fill its belly with the armed soldier, though in the case here referred to there were many soldiers concerned. And we read in our own scriptures, Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. He does not say serpents, though the people were suffering from many, and so in other cases. When, on the other hand, the original sin is expressed in the plural number, as when we say that infants are baptized for the remission of sins, instead of saying for the remission of sin, this is the converse figure of speech by which the plural number is put in place of the singular. As in the gospel it is said of the death of Herod, for they are dead who had sought the young child's life, instead of saying, he is dead. And in Exodus, they have made them, Moses says, gods of gold, 
though they had made only one calf, of which they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Here, too, putting the plural in place of the singular. Chapter 45 However, even in that one sin by which one man entered into the world, and so passed upon all men, and on account of which infants are baptized, a number of distinct sins may be observed, if it be analyzed, as it were, into its separate elements. For there is in it pride, because man chose to be under his own dominion, rather than under the dominion of God, and blasphemy, because he did not believe God, and murder, for he brought death upon himself, and spiritual fornication, for the purity of the human soul was corrupted by the seducing blandishments of the serpent, and theft, for man turned to his own use the food he had been forbidden to touch, and avarice, for he had a craving for more than should have been sufficient for him, and whatever other sin can be discovered on careful reflection to be involved in this one admitted sin. CHAPTER forty six, And it is said, with much appearance of probability, that infants are involved in the guilt of the sins not only of the first pair, but of their own immediate parents. For that divine judgment, I shall visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, certainly applies to them before they come under the new covenant by regeneration. And it was this new covenant that was prophesied of, when it was said by Ezekiel, that the son should not bear the iniquity of the fathers, and that it should no longer be a proverb in Israel, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Here lies the necessity that each man should be born again, that he might be freed from the sin in which he was born. For the sins committed afterwards can be cured by penitence, as we see is the case after baptism. And therefore the new birth would not have been appointed only that the first birth was sinful, so sinful that even one who was legitimately born in wedlock says, I was shapen in iniquities, and in sins did my mother conceive me. He did not say in iniquity, or in sin, though he might have said so correctly, but he preferred to say iniquities and sins, because in that one sin which passed upon all men, and which was so great that human nature was by it made subject to inevitable death, many sins, as I showed above, may be discriminated. And further, because there are other sins of the immediate parents, which, though they have not the same effect in producing a change of nature, yet subject the children to guilt unless the divine grace and mercy interpose to rescue them. Chapter 47 but about the sins of the other progenitors who intervene between Adam and a man's own parents, a question may very well be raised. Whether every one who is born is involved in all their accumulated evil acts, in all their multiplied original guilt, so that the later he is born so much the worse is his condition, or whether God threatens to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations, because in his mercy he does not extend his wrath against the sins of the progenitors further than that, lest those who do not obtain the grace of regeneration might be crushed down under too heavy a burden if they were compelled to bear as original guilt all the sins of all their progenitors from the very beginning of the human race, and to pay the penalty due to them, or whether any other solution of this great question may or may not be found in Scripture by a more diligent search and a more careful interpretation, I dare not rashly affirm. CHAPTER Forty-Eight. Nevertheless, that one sin, admitted into a place where such perfect happiness reigned, was of so heinous a character, that in one man the whole human race was originally, and, as one may say, radically condemned. And it cannot be pardoned and blotted out except through the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who only has had power to be so born as not to need a second birth.
Chapter 49 Now those who were baptized in the baptism of John, by whom Christ was himself baptized, were not regenerated, but they were prepared through the ministry of his forerunner, who cried, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, for him in whom only they could be regenerated. For his baptism is not with water only, as was that of John, but with the Holy Ghost also, so that whoever believes in Christ is regenerated by that Spirit, of whom Christ, being regenerated, he did not need regeneration. Whence that announcement of the Father, which was heard after his baptism, This day have I begotten thee, referred not to that one day of time on which he was baptized, but to the one day of an unchangeable eternity, so as to show that this man was one in person with the only begotten. For when a day neither begins with the close of yesterday, nor ends with the beginning of tomorrow, it is an eternal to-day. Therefore he asked to be baptized in water by John, not that any iniquity of his might be washed away, but that he might manifest the depth of his humility. For baptism found in him nothing to wash away, as death found in him nothing to punish, so that it was in the strictest justice, and not by the mere violence of power, that the devil was crushed and conquered. For, as he had most unjustly put Christ to death, though there was no sin in him to deserve death, it was most just that through Christ he should lose his hold of those who by sin were justly subject to the bondage in which he held them. Both of these, then, that is, both baptism and death, were submitted to by him, not through a pitiable necessity, but of his own free pity for us, and as part of an arrangement by which, as one man brought sin into the world, that is, upon the whole human race, so one man was to take away the sin of the world. CHAPTER 50 with this difference, the first man brought one sin into the world, but this man took away not only that one sin, but all that he found added to it. Hence the apostle says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For it is evident that the one sin which we bring with us by nature would, even if it stood alone, bring us under condemnation but the free gift justifies man from many offences. For each man, in addition to the one sin which, in common with all his kind, he brings with him by nature, has committed many sins that are strictly his own. Chapter 51 But what he says a little after, Therefore, as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, shows clearly enough that there is no one born of Adam but is subject to condemnation, and that no one, unless he be new-born in Christ, is freed from condemnation. Chapter 52 And after he has said as much about the condemnation through one man, and the free gift through one man, as he deems sufficient for that part of his epistle, the apostle goes on to speak of the great mystery of holy baptism and the cross of Christ, and to clearly explain to us that baptism in Christ is nothing else than a similitude of the death of Christ, and that the death of Christ on the cross is nothing but a similitude of the pardon of sin, so that, just as real as is his death, so real is the remission of our sins, and just as real as is his resurrection, so real is our justification. He says, What shall we say, then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? For he had said previously, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And therefore he proposes to himself the question whether it would be right to continue in sin for the sake of the consequent abounding grace. But he answers, God forbid, and adds, How shall we that are dead to sin 
live any longer therein. Then, to show that we are dead to sin, Know ye not, he says, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? If, then, the fact that we were baptized into the death of Christ proves that we are dead to sin, it follows that even infants who are baptized into Christ die to sin, being baptized into his death. For there is no exception made. So many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And this is said to prove that we are dead to sin. Now, to what sin do infants die in their regeneration, but that sin which they bring with them at birth? And therefore to these also applies what follows. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he had commenced with proving that we must not continue in sin, that grace may abound, and had said, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And to show that we are dead to sin, he added, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And so he concludes this whole passage just as he began it. For he has brought in the death of Christ in such a way as to imply that Christ himself also died to sin. To what sin did he die if not to the flesh, in which there was not sin, but the likeness of sin, and which was therefore called by the name of sin? To those who were baptized into the death of Christ, then, and this includes not adults only, but infants as well, he says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 53 All the events, then, of Christ's crucifixion, of his burial, of his resurrection the third day, of his ascension into heaven, of his sitting down at the right hand of the Father, were so ordered that the life which the Christian leads here might be modeled upon them, not merely in a mystical sense, but in reality. For in reference to his crucifixion it is said, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And in reference to his burial, we are buried with him by baptism into death. In reference to his resurrection, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And in reference to his ascension into heaven and sitting down to the right hand of the Father, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. End of chapters 34 through 53 Recorded by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, on April 12, 2007